We're going to be in Hebrews chapter 7 tonight. Hebrews chapter 7, and also um, keep your finger at Genesis chapter 14 and Psalm 110. I'll reference those again in a minute, but we're going to be jumping around just a little bit. But yeah, we've been journeying through the book of Hebrews. And just to give you guys just a little bit of a background to the book, um, we are not sure who wrote it. it there's no... Um, you know, ending reference at the end of the book saying, you know, I, Paul, or I, whoever wrote it. There's nothing there. So we don't really know. Some people say it was Paul. Um, the only problem with that is he usually signs his letters, and if he wrote this one, he didn't sign it. So we don't really know if it's Paul. Some people say it could be Apollos or some other church leaders like Priscilla or Aquila. So, yeah, we just don't know. But we do know that the book, the content itself, is geared towards the early Christian Jews. That was the kind of the audience. So it's safe to say this author was probably a Jew or at least someone who was fairly academic and really knew a lot about Jewish customs and the, uh, the Hebrew priesthood. So the theme of the book um, has one central theme and a lot of things kind of surrounding that. Um, really that central theme is the supreme authority of Jesus Christ. And that's his supreme authority over all of the Jewish traditions that had come previously. A couple of things that they had addressed in like the first few chapters of the book was angels. Um, Jesus is supreme over the angels. And we obviously know that now, but to a Hebrew audience, they saw the angels as very important because they saw them as mediators of the old covenant. So the writer of the Hebrews went out of his way to make sure and say, Jesus is better than the angels. Also, they talked about Moses, which is a, a hero of their faith and a hero of ours too. But Jesus is better than Moses. So this is constant theme of better or superior, and that's kind of where we're tracking tonight. So a theme that's introduced kind of throughout the book and specifically here in chapter 7 is the priestly line. And just as a background on that, basically the Jewish priests according to the law, are descendants of the tribe of Levi. And they were charged with making the intercession for the people for their sins. So obviously, this uh, line of priests, they're pretty important. And they're very crucial in their religious system that God had set up through his people. And it's important because God is holy. He has not changed. They were sinners. We're still sinners. And we all still need someone to intercede, as they did back then. So ultimately, the theme is Jesus. It's all around Jesus. And he's literally better than anything that came before. And we're going to see that theme played out tonight in respect to Jesus' priestly lineage. Um, he's, they've made a couple of references in the first part of this book, uh, specifically in chapter 2, 3, and 4, references to a need for a, a priest, a great high priest that we all have. But then it kind of shifts Getting into chapter 5 and 6, it's kind of honed in, it's focused in on the need for a priestly lineage that doesn't descend from the line of Aaron, something that's eternal. And this is what we're going to talk about tonight. And that is a priestly lineage from the order of Melchizedek. So we're going to ask a couple questions tonight. We're, I'm hoping to answer all those for you as we go through. So... First is, who was Melchizedek? That's pretty important to know. What's the significance of Melchizedek? And ultimately, how does he connect with Jesus?
And I will say right off the bat, before we get started into the verses, I'm going to tell you what this study is not. It's not going to be a clickbait YouTube video with some crazy little title that says, Calvary Chapel Trustwell has discovered the secret identity of Melchizedek. <laughs> no, that's not what it's going to be, clearly. Um, what I hope to do tonight is just to give you what the scripture says. And then that's going to be your job as Bereans to go home and study through it on your own. But we're going to go over the scripture passages that talk about him. To be honest, the Bible doesn't mention them very often. The references we're going to talk about tonight is all you get from the Bible regarding Melchizedek. But it's, it's enough. And I think this is exactly what the Lord wants us to see is the, the lineage, the priesthood, what Melchizedek represents, not necessarily his person. So we're going to see that Jesus, through this lineage, ushers in something greater. But yeah, let's dive in. We're going to start off and we're just going to break it down. We have, we're going to read verses 1 through 3 first. So Hebrews 7, 1 through 3. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. Then he is also king of Salem, that is the king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. That's a lot. So we're going to slow it down and look at all that. So backing up just a little bit in uh, chapter 6, um, I believe Jason was teaching through this part, but in chapter 6, the author of Hebrews explains that we have a hope and an anchor in Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ, when he suffered and died, he went behind that veil where we couldn't go. And he interceded on behalf when he laid down his life and was raised again. So it's safe to say that when Jesus did that, and that's connected to this priestly lineage we're going to be talking about, that means this is a pretty important lineage, and we should know exactly what the Lord wants us to understand from this. So, and it's obviously completely different from a Levitical priesthood. But we see in verse 1 of our passage that he is Melchizedek. And please forgive me, guys. I tried to shorthand. So if I say Mel by accident, I apologize. It's Melchizedek. <laughs> so we see in verse 1 that he is Melchizedek. And he's king of Salem, and he's priest of the Most High God. That's quite a bit. And it's significant to note that he was a king and a priest. And according to Hebrew tradition, or at least with the Levites, priests were not allowed to be kings. They had to appoint kings and they had to appoint priests, but it could not be the same person. And that's just a very important distinction between this priesthood of Melchizedek and the Levitical priesthood. You'll notice he is a king of Salem. And um, in Psalm chapter 76, and you guys can read that on your own time. It references this location. And from what I've been studying and reading, this ancient location of Salem seems to be identified as the site of where Jerusalem will be. So it's the original historical site of Jerusalem. And Melchizedek is king of this city called Salem. So again, Psalm 76, you can read that on your own. So in the first couple of verses, 
we're really just given a synopsis from Genesis 14, which is where the story is coming from. And um, honestly, when the, the early Jewish audience, when they were reading this, this is a story they probably would have been very familiar with. But this is where the Holy Spirit's very clever because he takes historical content they know in Scripture and pulls out spiritual truths that they need to understand that maybe they missed the first time. So we're actually going to read that historical account, and it's Genesis 14. You guys can turn there. And we're going to be reading uh, verses 17 through 20. So after his defeat, his return from the defeat of Shedlamir, and forgive me if I butcher that, and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the, ballot, at the valley of Shiva, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him, Abraham, and said, Blessed be Abraham by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. So we're coming in kind of at the backside of that story. So um, basically, if you, you know, read through that whole chapter, you're going to see we're coming in just after Abraham had fish, finished rescuing his nephew Lot from his captors. And there are four kings, Elam, Goim, Shinar, and Elasser. He These kings ended up making uh, or battled against Sodom and Gomorrah, and they defeated Sodom and Gomorrah. And because of that, Lot was taken captive along with his family and everything he owned. And in that story, someone managed to escape, told Abraham, hey, Lot's gone, he's been captured. And so Abraham gathered his forces, about 318 men, and pursued the kings and took back Lot. So that's another teaching for another time, which Tyler already did that. So he took back Lot and all his possessions, rescued them. And we're coming into the story right here where Abraham, after he defeated him, he ended up meeting with the king of Sodom. And that meeting is very important because in that meeting, the third person who showed up was the king of Salem, Melchizedek. And really, we don't get much context in that particular passage, what brought him there. We just know that he showed up there. And we know from the passage, he is a worshiper and a priest of God Most High. And it's also important to know, and um, he is not of the Hebrew lineage. He's not a Jew. So that means he's a Gentile. So, honestly, he's one of the first Gentile believers we actually come across. And it seems to be, since he was a priest and a king, that meant he ruled over Salem, and he was basically their spiritual leader in that king or that city. So that's pretty cool to think about. He brought bread and wine to the meeting, which, again, another great spiritual analogy that God planned. And then he pronounced a blessing over Abraham and blessed God. So, and at the end of the story, you'll see in Genesis that Abraham gave Melchizedek a tenth or a tithe of all the spoils from the battle. And also in that passage, too, we see that Abraham had sworn to God he's not going to keep any of the spoils. He's like, I don't want these spoils. I don't want anything from Sodom or anything that I took back from these kings. I want to give it all back. But yet, out of those spoils, he chose to tithe to this man Melchizedek. So that's pretty significant. And he saw it as a tithe unto the Lord. So in verse 1 and 2 of our passage back in Hebrews 7, you know, we get basically a brief description 
of that account. So you'll notice Genesis is pretty detailed, it's pretty historical, but the author of Hebrews here decides to draw out some spiritual parallels, which are pretty cool, and it just really further drives the connection that he's trying to make. So in verse 2, the writer says that by translation of his name, it means king of righteousness. So in Hebrew, Melki means my king, and Zedek means righteousness. So literally, his name translated my king of righteousness. And in Genesis, he's a king of Salem, but again, he takes a spiritual analogy from that and basically says, well, the word Salem in Hebrew means peace. So we see that there's a king of righteousness and of peace. And that sounds familiar because those are messianic attributes that Isaiah talks about in chapter 9, verses 6 through 7. So you can kind of begin to see the argument the, the writer of Hebrews is making. That this mysterious king and priest has qualities that are later to be carried out and fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Verse 3 can be kind of interesting when you read it. There's a couple different ways we can look at it. It says, because he has no family lineage, and, or it's really interesting because he has no family lineage or no notable beginning or end of his life. And there's a couple of ways you can interpret that. Is this man supernatural in nature, that he wasn't born and he didn't die? That's one way to interpret it. The other way to interpret it is simply the Bible just doesn't say. The Bible doesn't give a genealogy. The Bible doesn't say who his mother and father were. The Bible doesn't say when he died. They just left it at that. And that's really where I tend to lean more towards because the more I've looked into this passage, the writer of Hebrews is not trying to ascribe a supernatural um, sense to this guy, Melchizedek. He's, just, he's going to use this in a minute, you'll see. But the Bible doesn't say you know, what his genealogy is. So, and honestly, it makes more sense, too, because all of this, as we've already said, is pointing towards Jesus. So the focus of this is not on Melchizedek. The focus of, of this is Jesus. And honestly, I think sometimes when we read stuff like this, we kind of tend to get bogged down in all the smaller details, and the Lord's like, just a little bit further. I know, I know you, want to, you want to figure all this out, but I'm here this is the important part. I'm, the passage is talking about me. Focus on me. So I think that's what the Lord is trying to get at here. So since Melchizedek had no written beginning or end, he resembles Jesus in that Jesus has no beginning or end, and Jesus continues as a priest forever, just as Melchizedek did. And just remember, Jesus' lineage is eternal because he is God. He is eternal. He does not die. He was not born. So that's the connection the author is trying to make. So, you know, with these first couple of verses, you kind of see just how unique this priesthood is. It's just completely different than the Levitical priesthood. So let's look at verses 4 through 10, and we'll read these together. See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. And, the, and those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, <clears throat> though these are also descended from Abraham. But this man, 
Melchizedek, who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who received tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. So there's trying to establish a hierarchy here. And you'll notice the passage, he refers to Abraham as the patriarch. So he's the father of the Hebrew race, and as far as the Jews are concerned, he's top dog. You know, every tribe descended from him, from Judah all the way to Levi. So he, as far as hierarchy is concerned, he's here. All the tribes are here. So when we read verse 4, we're honestly supposed to get a sense of shock, you know, or maybe a sense of, should I even say that? You know, I don't want to get struck by lightning or nothing. <laughs> but that's really what the, the writer's going for. It's supposed to be, whoa, this is kind of hard to comprehend. Because even Abraham, the top dog, the patriarch, paid tithes to Melchizedek. So this means that when Abraham encountered him, he saw him as a true priest of God. And honestly, this is more of a side note, but I feel it's important. You know, when we kind of feel the same way when we tithe too, because really, if you think about what tithing is, and I know this is a, another teaching for another time, I'm not going to go into it, but tithing and giving of your first fruits, you know, we're giving back to the Lord. And the reason why we do that, of course, Scripture gives us reason but we're doing that. We're tithing to the Lord because we see him as worthy. And we're worshiping him with our first fruits, with our tithes. So that's really the sense that we get from this passage tonight. Is that Abraham, who worships the Lord just as Melchizedek did, saw Melchizedek acting in that role. And he thus says, okay, I'm going to worship the Lord with my tithes by giving them to Melchizedek. So that's pretty significant there. And in verse 5, when we read through that, it's basically, it, was, it said that it was required by law for the priests, and they're talking about the Levitical priests, to receive the tithe from their brothers. And this goes into more detail in Numbers chapter 18. But basically, the tithe from Israel is an inheritance to the Levites. The other tribes, and I'm sure you guys remember this, all had a certain inheritance a certain amount of land that they are given but the levites didn't get anything their their inheritance was the priesthood so that meant they needed to earn a wage they needed to make a living so the lord did made an ordinance that the tithes that israel paid would go to the priesthood so you could honestly say this is probably like the first paid first paid ministry staff or something like that but the priests received these tithes and the author also points out, and again, it's going back to this hierarchy he's trying to establish, that the Levitical priests have the same father as Abraham. So it's still Abraham, the priests, and all of their brothers pay tithes to the priests. So Abraham's still on top, as you can see. But then we get into verse 6, and we see that Melchizedek is not the same lineage as the priest. In fact, he's a Gentile but he still received tithes from the top dog, from Abraham. 
and in turn bless the father of the Hebrews. And also you'll notice too that the tithes that were required to be paid to the Levites, that was a requirement, that was a law, but Abraham gave willingly to Melchizedek. Melchizedek didn't ask him to do it, just Abraham recognized the importance of this man and, how, and whom he represented and gave it as an act of worship. So that clear picture of hierarchy that I've been talking about. As important as the priests were, the Levitical priests, they were still blood brothers with the rest of the Hebrews, and they were still inferior to their father Abraham. And yet Abraham, as verse 7 tells us, is still the inferior. So this priesthood, this Melchizedek priesthood, is distinctly superior to what has come before. So... We definitely get a picture of the importance that God is placing on this and ultimately who it points to. Um, and honestly, this probably would have caused some stirring in the pews, so to speak, and not just because the pews were uncomfortable. But, um, you know, these Jewish, uh, the Jewish audience reading this letter or hearing it spoken, they probably would have said, don't mess with Abraham. <laughs> don't mess with Abraham. He's important. Abraham was on top, and they revered him as a patriarchal father. And um, even in James chapter 2, it says that Abraham is a friend of God. But yet, we learn that Abraham was inferior to this man. And since Jesus embodies this lineage, as we're going to continue to discuss, we just see how superior Jesus is, not only over the Hebrews, but us as well. Uh, verses 8 through 10 we kind of see some interesting comparisons between Levitical priests and Melchizedek. And honestly, the language can be a little bit confusing with how it's worded, but it's really important to understand exactly what he's saying in those verses. And he's saying that in regards to the Levitical priest, they are mortal. You know, they're men, they die. And honestly, you might would say that their priesthood is basically marked by mortality. So, you know, at least when I was reading this, and I'm sure you do too, but you get a sense of impermanence when you're thinking about the Levitical priesthood. Like there's just something about it that's temporary. These men getting put into this position, they die, another one comes. It's like there's something better coming. So that's kind of the sense we get. So we got on this one hand, we got the priesthood, this, these mortal priests, and on the other hand, We've got one of whom it is testified that he lives. So that can be a little bit confusing. Honestly, we don't know, or we do know who he's talking about. Based out of the context of verses 7 through 10, um, it's, he's talking about Melchizedek. And it's honestly easy to see how it might be Jesus, but based off of the person he's talking about you know, in the prior verses up until now, this is Melchizedek one of whom it is testified that he lives. And it's simply because he has no beginning or end. So his priesthood is eternal. So, and he's also referencing here Psalm 110, and we're actually going to come to that here in a couple minutes. But I do want to say as well, this is not implying that the Levitical priest were mortal and Melchizedek is eternal. Again, the author is communicating that Yes, the priesthood, the Levitical priesthood is temporary, but the priesthood of Melchizedek, not the person, is eternal. And he's drawing a spiritual parallel, and 
I was reading a commentary on this, and and he, uh, I don't even remember what he used, but I changed it to arguing from the Spirit. What's that phrase? I don't remember. But arguing from the Spirit, as one commentator should have put it, that since Melchizedek has no record of death, then his priesthood is eternal. Since he didn't officially die according to records, that meant his line continues on. So, one of whom it is testified that he lives. Verses 9 and 10, and um, one might even say that Levi himself, who received tithes, so it's talking about the priesthood, Levitical priesthood, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. I would say it, don't get lost in the phrasing. The important thing here is that the priesthood of Melchizedek is superior to Levi. And he's basically saying, well, Abraham paid tithes to this priesthood. Therefore, since one day out of Abraham comes the Levitical priesthood, they hypothetically paid tithes. So it's still hearkening back to that hierarchy that I told you guys about. And honestly, the type of analogy that he used here is pretty cool and it's used in other places in the Bible. I might encourage you guys to study that in your own time. Let's look at verses 11 through 17. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than the one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one, Jesus, of whom these things are spoken, belong to another tribe, from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest, not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So we see another important point here. And obviously in the beginning there, perfection is simply not attainable under the law. Mankind needed something else. It needed the superior. Romans 3 verse 20 says, For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So, and honestly, if the law was enough for perfection, you know, why are we even discussing a need for another? Simply put, the law is not and was never intended to be enough. It's also important to understand that the law was inseparably linked to the religious structure of Israel, the priesthood. So, if perfection can be attained by the law and Levitical priesthood, then there wouldn't be a need for a new priesthood and a new covenant. But since, as we just uh, read in Romans 3, the law is not enough, and therefore a priest after the order of Melchizedek is needed. And when, as we just read in our passage, there's a change in priesthood, a distinct change in law is required too. And reading through this, it's important to know that the author used the word change. Because in the eyes of the Jewish people, God authored the law, and to them it is eternally valid. 
And he wanted them to know that he's not saying the law is abolished or destroyed, but it was simply changed. And we're reminded of the words of Jesus, uh, Matthew 5, verses 17 through 18 says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have come to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. So obviously the change in the law is that we are saved by grace through faith. It's a gift of God. And this is also a little bit of a side note too, but the law is still useful. And that's what the, the writer's trying to say. It wasn't destroyed. It still has its purpose, but, it's, but it can't save us. So in that sense, yes, it is useless. But, there is, but it is important that we don't just discard it completely because the Holy Spirit can still use the law to help guide us into good biblical ways to live a godly life. And I don't know if you guys remember, Pastor Tyler actually just finished teaching through uh, Leviticus and Numbers and some of the older law books. And honestly, there are probably some chapters where you're probably thinking to yourself, man, I'm so glad I don't have to keep a pair of turtle doves at home. (laughs) Be a lot of cleanup for sure. But you'll notice, I mean, at least for me, sitting underneath those teachings, even though there was a whole lot of lawful app like lawful direction, there was a lot of spiritual application that we came away with. So my point there is don't just discard it. The Holy Spirit can still use it to draw out principles that can help us. So, and ultimately though, just remember that the law serves as that standard and that shows us how sinful we are and yet again points us to Jesus. So this change in the law was needed. And he had directed the change by appointing Jesus as our new high priest under that new priestly lineage. Another change he talks about is pointed out actually in verses uh, 13 through 16. These verses speak of Jesus um, as he descends from the tribe of Judah. And under the old law, Moses said nothing about a priest coming from that tribe. It was all from Levi. But you'll see that God had been planning Jesus, that Jesus would come from a different tribe for all eternity. This was God's plan. And honestly, a perfect spiritual parallel because Melchizedek wasn't of the priestly lineage of Levi either. So yet again, pointing to Jesus. And verse 16, you'll notice a word there. He says that Jesus became a priest in the likeness of Melchizedek. And that word, honestly, that word is very important because the word likeness, and actually in the Greek, that word is homoiotes. And what that word means, it means resemble or similar. So what he's saying here is that the author, the author says that Jesus arose as a priest and he's similar and he resembles Melchizedek. Not necessarily saying he is, just resembles but more on that in just a couple of minutes. Not on the basis of legal requirement concerning bodily descent, which we just talked about with the tribe of Judah versus the, the tribe of Levi, but by the power of an indestructible life. And honestly, this is actually a very unique term. And this term, you'll notice, is actually used only once in the Bible, and it's right here. 
And it's pretty, you know, basically it's talking about Jesus. His priesthood is eternal because he did, they tried to kill him, or they did, and he rose from the dead. He's eternal. They couldn't stop him. So he was indestructible, and that's who we're talking about here is Jesus. He conquered death, and he lives eternally. Amen. So we're actually now going to look at Psalms 110. And if you guys want to turn there, you can to Psalms 110, verse 4. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. That's Psalm 110. And then you notice in verse 17 of our passage in Hebrews 7, the author kind of loosely quotes it. It says, For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So the question is asked, who witnessed this of Jesus? Simple answer, it was God. And it's implied here that God, or it's said here, God appointed Jesus as our priest forever. And since according to Scripture, Melchizedek's priestly line was eternal, Jesus fit the bill perfectly because death couldn't stop him and he is the only one counted as worthy to hold this office and also, just something I was thinking about here in this passage, um, just it's important to note that Melchizedek shows up for only just a couple of verses in Genesis, and then you don't hear anything about him for a long time. And then, you know, the Bible continues, the Lord sets up a priesthood, the story of the Israelites, and then you come to David, and then the Lord, through the Holy Spirit, tells David to write Psalm 110. So you can kind of see how, yes, not much is said about Melchizedek in this priestly line, but you see how the Lord has not forgotten about this and how much importance the Lord places on it. So David says what he says in Psalms 110, and then we come to Jesus, and it's perfectly fulfilled through Jesus. So if Jesus can work something out over that long period of time, even though there might be a lot that happens in between, we can trust Jesus. We can trust him to work things out. So obviously, with that being said, um, God did set up the Levitical priesthood, but it was only meant to be temporary until Jesus came. The fullness of time had come. Verses 18 through 22. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced, through which we draw near to God, and it was not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. Verse 18 and 19 just going back to more comparisons of the two priesthood. And honestly, the law in comparison to Jesus is unable to save. However, this doesn't mean we despise it. And we talked about that in Matthew. It's still valuable to us. But in regards to the ultimate goal, it is useless because it cannot save us. It does not accomplish his eternal purpose. And we kind of see this language in other parts of the New Testament as well. Actually, Paul uses it in Romans 7, 
I'm going to go ahead and read that passage. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit to God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions, aroused by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we may serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. I love how Paul just puts things so plainly. But yeah, Paul supports this idea. It's supported all over Scripture, you guys. The old law, while it served a purpose, was meant to be fulfilled and changed in Jesus Christ. So we continue to look ahead to him, and he's honestly our hope. In verse 20, the author actually draws out another important distinction of the priesthood. And the Levitical priesthood, as we have you know, learned, was instated by God's law and maintained by the blood of the Levites. And Exodus 29 um, explains it because they were made priests by a lasting ordinance. And as long as the Levites continued, so did the ordinance. What do you guys think of when the word ordinance is thrown out there? I'm going to be all about, I think of HOAs and laws and cold, harsh laws and all sorts of things. But it was the line of the priesthood was maintained by an ordinance of God. He instated it by ordinance. And in Psalm 110, and again here in verse 21, it was the law or the, the priesthood of Jesus or the priesthood of Melchizedek was instated by an oath from the Lord. And what is an oath? It's a promise. And it's an everlasting promise fulfilled in Jesus Christ. So you can already see there's two important there's a distinction there between the Levitical priesthood basically instated by law, but the Lord promised this priesthood. The Lord promised this, and he has faithful to fulfill those promises. And I really actually kind of like the words he used. He says it's an everlasting oath, and he's not going to change his mind. And, you know, I was thinking about this. This means that, you know, one day he's not going to come back to me like, Jacob, I know I promised that salvation was through grace, through faith, but I think for you, I'm just going to just revert it back to the old ways just as once. You got it. It's fine. And, you know, I'm just thankful he didn't do that or hasn't done that. The Lord is faithful to his promises. Hebrews 10, 23 says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And we see that in our lives, not only with just what we're talking about tonight, but the Lord has been faithful in so many different ways to my wife and I, been faithful to this church, and I'm sure in each of you guys' families too, you could probably tell me dozens of stories how he's faithful he's been. So we can trust, we can trust him, guys. And honestly, I think we sometimes we have a hard time trusting him because, you know, of course, obviously 100% of the time it's not his fault. Um, honestly, the fault is within us because we kind of put this humanly attribute on the Lord 
And like, well, I've seen how I don't hold up to my promises. I've seen how so-and-so doesn't keep their promises, so obviously the Lord's not going to keep his. So we ascribe to this attribute the Lord does not deserve and is not merited by him. He is faithful even when we are not. He's everlasting. He can keep his promises. And in verse 22, because of God's oath and Jesus' eternal role, it makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. So we had an old covenant that came before. It revealed to us our sin, and it established a means, albeit uh, in a not permanent means, that God's people can make atonement for their sins. But Jesus brings about a better covenant, a one that's eternal. Let's look at verses 23 through 25 of our passage. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. And consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. And obviously the office of priest was held by a long line of men, as we're reading in the passage, um, the priests of the Levites. And because they were mortal, it just meant that a man had to, one man dies, another man comes in, takes his place. So it was a constant succession of people. And we can't say, well, God, you made a bad, you made a bad ordinance, you made a bad call. It's, that was the Lord working with sinful human man the best that he could because he is perfect and we're not. But this meant that the Levitical priests, there were just lots of them. There were high priests and there were priests that served under them. And it just felt less permanent, as we've talked about. And we just get a sense that this was God's ideal, and he wanted something more consistent and permanent. Verse 24, but he, meaning Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. The eternal aspect of Jesus is crucial, guys. If he was not eternal or is not eternal, then this doesn't work. And we like that sense of permanence, too. And because of, you know, we don't like change, guys. I know I don't. And I don't know how I would do living underneath the Levitical priesthood. Probably not that great. But we don't like change. We like permanence. And Jesus gives us that, guys. And Romans 8.34 says, Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one that died, and more than that, who is raised, who is at the right hand of God, and who is interceding for us. He's consistent. He's still doing his job. He's there, and he didn't abandon his office. He didn't die and someone else come in. He's there. He was going to continually be there. And because of that, we can rely on Jesus. Verse 25 we see that Jesus, that because Jesus is eternal, he is the only one able to save us all. And his work, he died on the cross and rose again. And because of that one sacrifice, all our sins can be covered if we accept him as our Savior. And now he's at the right hand of the Father interceding for us daily, guys. Daily. And the Jews, underneath the Levitical priesthood, had to make sacrifices as prescribed by the law. You know, They couldn't just slaughter a single calf and be made eternally righteous. Every single sin had to be atoned for each time. 
and the blood of the animals that was shed under this old covenant didn't have eternal weight to it like Jesus' blood does. And Jesus, who is eternal by his very nature, can in fact offer one sacrifice once and for all and sustain all those who call upon his name. Praise Jesus. Uh, Verse 26 and through 28, coming to the end here. For it is indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, the Levitical priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins, and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, the promise of the Father, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Coming to the end, we see just more comparisons between Jesus and the Levitical priests. And obviously the priests of Aaron were imperfect, sinful people. And by God's grace, they were allowed to function. It's not like they had a right. They were allowed to function in that role of intercession. And the Lord shows us that same grace as as his uh, sons and daughters. All of the qualities actually he listed here in that passage in verse 26 are perfectly met by Jesus. You know, he is holy because he is God. He is innocent because he never sinned and he took our guilt and he made atonement. He's unstained, you know, obviously because he never sinned. He was a perfect human being on this earth. And he never required a priest to intercede. It's not like a priest had to offer a sacrifice for something Jesus did. He was separated from sinners. And it doesn't mean that we can't be with him. It just means that he's perfect. We're not. That's really what it means. We're the dirty, rotten sinners in this scenario. So he's perfect in every way, and we are not, and he's exalted above the heavens. Because he is God, and he deserves all the honor and glory and praise, we're nothing more than dust to him, which... When you think about it that way, it makes it all that more awe-inspiring that Jesus did what he did for us. The the Levitical priests, though, being human, had to make atonement for their own sins before they could even do what God had assigned them. And the process worked, I mean, until they messed up. (laughs) Honestly, it was not ideal, and the Lord showed a great deal of love and grace in letting the men function. But they had to make those daily and yearly sacrifices, and they had to atone for themselves before they could even do what the Lord had called them to do. Jesus doesn't have to do that. He's sinless. And he can, he can intercede for us. He doesn't have to do it for himself. Verse 28, and it's really just a nice concluding statement from the author. You know, the Old Testament priests were appointed to the office even in their sinful and weak state. By God's word and grace, they carried out the role, but it wasn't sufficient. And really, as we read, you know, as we read earlier in Psalm 110, Jesus is our high priest and our intercessor after the order of Melchizedek and according to the oath made by God most high. Not a human ordinance, but a promise made by an all-loving and all-sufficient creator.
So finishing up, um, just want to encourage you guys, trust in Jesus, because if he can work all this out from Genesis until now, then he can work out what's going on in your life. <laughs> you know, and Jesus, and also Jesus is important, and we focus on him first, because, you know, as we've learned in this you know, learned in this study this evening, Melchizedek wasn't the important person. Melchizedek was just pointing towards the important person, and that's Jesus.